You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. Later in the program, we have A Few Minutes with the Mayor, a weekly segment where WFHB News interviews Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. More in the bottom half of our show. Also coming up, an online pre-K program is now available at no cost to Hoosiers in need. More in the top half of the program. But first, your daily headlines. The Bloomington City Council deliberated the annexation ordinances at the September 15th meeting. The council took into consideration the citizens' concerns over increased taxes and removed parcels of land from annexation. Mayor John Hamilton explained why he believes the annexation process is necessary and why the city is following through with it, regardless of the opposition it has faced. When I took office in January 2016, I soon learned that our city had stopped annexing any property in about 2004, despite continual significant growth in urbanization. With lots of public discussion and engagement, we began in early 2017 the process to remedy that disconnect between city boundaries on the books and city development and growth on the ground. In the middle of a very orderly and robust six-month process, public process, state interests, primarily conservative rural interests in the legislature, intervened illegally in 2017, seeking to stop our annexation efforts altogether. We sued, and three and a half years later, the Indiana Supreme Court agreed uh, with us. And in the meantime, the state legislature took two more major steps seeking to diminish the chances for an impact of annexation, dealing with existing sewer waivers and with fire territory coverage. We have carried on and will carry on as our city did for its first 185 years in appropriate and orderly annexation efforts. One parcel of land was left to be discussed whether or not it would be included in the annexation. The residents on Heritage Woods Road made several comments against their annexation, saying that it only received city water and they would not benefit from annexation. Heritage Wood Road resident Jonna Capio explained why she thinks this parcel of land should not be annexed. I'd like to speak to the history, the heritage, and the character of our road because it seems like we are seen as only a line on a very big map. Heritage Woods Roads was established in 1961 as a 501c3 private road. We've never had county services. In 1961, there was no Lake Monroe and no College Mall shopping area. This was a country, this was a country road miles from the city. Our road was established as a rural forested dead end ridge road surrounded and locked in by deep ravines and salt creek tributaries. Our properties are big. They range from one to 12 acres. We do not meet Indiana state urban density minimums for annexation. The vote to exempt it from annexation failed three to six to zero. In concluding comments, council member Sandberg explained her hesitation to move forward with annexation. 
Um, as we ponder this ambitious annexation proposal, the thought occurs to me that as we strive to right-size Bloomington, we do so as we downsize our county colleagues who represent the interests of their constituents. It's telling, I believe, that three of our county commissioners have joined this um, discussion on the fiscal plans tonight, and they are in opposition. And that gives me great pause. Um, another huge obstacle for me, and this is no news to anyone or the administration, is this non-capital issue of police protection and public safety. And um, that gives me even more pause. So given all that we've heard and all that we've examined, I find myself completely losing my appetite for involuntary annexation. It would certainly be my hope that we could do so more incrementally and more uh, because of, of people. And we have heard from people who say they want to be annexed, but that would have to be done in a large enough scale uh, that would make this much more pal palatable for me. And so that's all I will say. Thank you. The council decided to recess for the night and will continue the discussion on the proposed annexation parcels on Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. An online pre-K program is now available at no cost to low-income families. Waterford Upstart offers remote early learning to four-year-olds a year before they begin kindergarten. Kim Fisher, Vice President of Communication for Waterford.org, explained the basis of the program and what it's trying to accomplish for Indiana's youth. So Waterford Upstart is a really wonderful program that gets parents involved in the process of getting a child ready for kindergarten. So it's done in the year before kindergarten. So right now we're looking to enroll children who will begin kindergarten in 2022. And so the way the program works in Indiana is that we provide our program to children. They use it 30 minutes a day, five days a week. It includes literacy, math, and science. And so the children get all three of those things five days a week. But then this is the most important part if you ask me about our program. We get the parents involved too. And so families get a coach that will walk them through the process, answer any questions, call and check in on the families to make sure that, you know, things are going well. Um, and then they also get push notifications three times a week. On Mondays, they, they get a push notification letting them know how their child did the week before. Wednesdays, they get a push notification letting them know exactly what their child is learning in that moment and how they can work with them offline. And that's crucially important. And then on Fridays, they get a social emotional message to give them a, a topic socially and emotionally that they can talk about with their children. Um, they're, they're, they're typical things that all families should be talking about, but maybe they just don't think about talking about. And so, you know, by the end of this program, children begin right around now and they go all the way through May where we have a fun little graduation for the kiddos and, and celebrate their success. Um, but throughout all of that, the idea is to set this foundation of literacy and get these children prepared so that they walk into kindergarten ready. And the average Waterford Upstart graduate will walk into kindergarten reading at a nearly first grade level. The program offers a free computer and internet access free of charge. Fisher speaks to how Waterford Upstart aims to cultivate productive screen time for young children. It is impossible in our world right now to completely avoid technology. So the important thing to do is to make sure children understand 
how to use technology in the right way and in a responsible way. And so that's why we limit our program to 30 minutes a day in the state of Indiana, uh, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, an hour of day of, of technology a day is exactly um, what they suggest. So we come in under that amount. But again, what we find is that the children who don't have access to technology, they are the ones that suffer when they get into school. And the very first test that they take is on a computer, yet they don't know how to use one. And so it's important for children to understand how to use that computer and to feel confident on it. And so, again, what we do is education through our program. It's not that mindless, numbing screen time, which, you know, again, the American Academy of Pediatrics has said, educational screen time does not count as screen time. Um, but all that to be said, we do believe in limiting screen time. And so um, it's all about doing it in the most responsible way that's going to help the child and help the family. We do provide a computer and internet access at no cost to the families that need it. Because in the state of Indiana, we are looking to reach families that are at 127% of the poverty line and below. And so that's basically a, a, a family of four that's making around $35,000 a year. And so these are the families that will possibly need access to a computer, possibly need access to the internet. So we want to make sure that those families have all the tools they need. Fisher said that children from birth to five years old are still being shaped by the world around them. She says that she hopes the program will provide a head start during their developmental years. A child from the ages of zero to five, their brain will develop at least 85%. So they are just sponges for learning at that moment in time. So that's why it's really great to start during these years. But aside from that, the reason our program it, it makes a difference is that you will have children that have all of the resources in the world. They may be going to Montessori school, you know, a, a really great pre-K, uh, parents as teachers. And so they are prepared. They are learning all of these things at home. When they walk into kindergarten, they're going to be ready to go. It's the children that don't have access to those types of early learning situations. They will walk into school immediately behind. And research shows that if a child starts behind, they are likely to stay behind. And if a child is not reading at grade level by third grade, it will be nearly impossible for them to catch up. And so it's important to find these children who don't have access to that early learning and give them some form of access to prepare them. Because one of the most important things a child can walk into school with is confidence. And when they walk in and a teacher asks a question and they know how to answer it, they get that confidence immediately. And when the children recognize that they are behind their peers, they feel that, that they will start to lack that confidence, and we just really want to avoid that. So there are so many reasons to really want to get a child prepared for school early, um, and those are just a few. In 2018, the Federal Communication Commission, or the FCC, estimated that about one-quarter of rural Americans and one-third of tribal Americans did not have access to broadband internet, which is a minimum of 25 megabits per second for download and 3 megabits for upload speeds. Fisher spoke to how she wants the program to at least partly close that gap. When it comes to offering Internet, we try to find whatever Internet access is going to work best for those families. 
Um, for example, in Navajo Nation in southern Utah, we know that Navajo Nation has a very hard time receiving Internet access the typical ways that families would in, in a city. And so we start off by providing a hotspot, a Verizon hotspot. If that one doesn't work, we switch to AT&T. We switch to T-Mobile. We contact whatever local provider is there. We work hard to try to find whatever Internet access is going to work best for these families, and we don't stop until we find a solution. Waterford Upstart partnered with the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration and the state legislature to expand the program to families in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. We initially were only serving certain counties in the most rural areas. Well, because of COVID and because there were so many families who did not have access to On My Way Pre-K, even if there was one, you know, within a few miles of the home, uh, the state legislature decided to allow our program to reach any family in the state um, that didn't have access to On My Way Pre-K, whether it was because of transportation or work schedule. And so any family in the state can utilize our program as long as they are at 127% of the poverty line and below, and they cannot, for whatever reason, access On My Way Pre-K. Fisher says that early education sets a foundation for children to succeed in the future. She recommends that parents enroll their child into a pre-K program, even if it's not Waterford. Families with a child entering kindergarten in the fall of 2022 can register for the program at waterfordupstart.org. Now it's time for A Few Minutes with the Mayor, a weekly segment where WFHB poses questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. In today's episode, WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky Schneider speaks with the mayor on COVID-19 and climate issues. We turn to Herhusky Schneider for more. members and volunteers here at WFHB post questions for the mayor and we ask him for you. So thanks for listening. Here we go. All right. Well, I'll just, are you ready to dive in then? Yep. All right. So at the latest COVID-19 press conference, um, Petty Coddle sh- um, shared that Monroe County is now in the orange advisory category um, and that the CDC recommends typically that we start limiting the number of people at social gatherings. So I was just curious um, what this means for the community and what your office is doing to help. Yeah, thanks. You know, we've we've seen a backsliding uh, in numbers locally as well as the state. And of course, we're all concerned about the Delta variant. It's a very serious and indeed alarming kind of numbers over the last weeks and short months. 
um, we are meeting continually to explore what we can and should do to keep everybody safe. I will say Monroe County is in one of the best shapes of all the counties in the state, which I think reflects the fact that we've had tighter restrictions. We have the mask mandate in place. We have had tighter restrictions kind of throughout this whole pandemic and that we have institutions that are really focused and some requiring vaccinations, some uh, pushing them hard. And I think that all helps us. Um, we're really constantly, you know, managing how do we keep everybody safe while not over uh, overtaxing uh, everybody's uh, lives. And um, we're watching it carefully. I, there's hope that the that the Delta variant is going to be loosening up a little bit here. We don't know that for sure, but we're watching it literally kind of day by day to see how things go. Mm-hmm. And there's talk about um, the mass mandate. Uh, they're just seeing if they'll let it kind of expire and then people kind of enforcing it themselves and maybe focusing more on vaccination. Um, do you have any input on that? Well, I hope the mask mandate will stay. Uh, I've shared that message with the Board of Health, uh, the board that makes that determination uh, shortly here on the recommendation. I think we should keep it. I think the combination of masking and vaccinations has been really important, Um, continuing to listen to experts. Of course, we try to do that. We are not seeing dramatic numbers rise in vaccinations, Um, you know, even if they're incentive programs and others, which seem to be kind of stuck uh, where we are. So the masking is really important because we have a lot of people who have not gotten vaccinated and are and are out and about, and the Delta variant is very infectious. So Mm -hmm. I hope we'll keep the mask mandate longer. I think it's important uh, unless we see dramatic changes in the underlying infection rates. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going back to quote-unquote normal nowadays, and um, things are fast, and it's kind of been a little wild since, you know, my day-to-day pace this time last year was completely virtual. Um, And I was just curious, from your position as the mayor, how do you see uh, all of this affecting um, residents' lives and well-being? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's got a lot of facets to it. Um, you know, on the one hand, when uh, in the summer and with certain groups of people, we're able to get back together and face-to-face and see people that we haven't seen in the same physical space for a long time, it can be so rewarding and important, and that mental health and that and that that joy that can come from, from those kind of interactions is so important, or whether it's seeing an outdoor concert or other things like that. Those are those are very real. They're really important. Um, and, and it's important for us to figure out how we can help make that happen safely. Uh, on the other hand, we are not out of the woods and we're not back to normal. Uh, and we have to continue to be careful. There are people dying every day in our state. There are people on ventilators just across town in our hospital right now that may not make it. And so being very cognizant that we cannot just act like everything's okay because it's not yet um and uh you know it's it is it is frustrating that we feel close we can kind of see the where where we might get to but uh, frankly because we don't have enough people vaccinated we're not quite there yet so i'm very sensitive to this really tough balance between continuing to make sure we protect each other our families and our loved ones on the one hand while also really desiring to, you know, the, to be able to do some of the things we want to do again. And it's a, it's, it's a tough time. I'm, I'm very 
sympathetic to what everybody's going through from economics to to uh, to mental health, you know. Mm-hmm. And nice segue there. You mentioned economics. And so this, during all of this, Laughing Planet, Darn Good Soup, Poor House, personal favorites of mine, uh, are and about 16 others, give or take, have closed their doors. Um, how does the Bloomington government help local businesses stay open? You know, this has been a brutal economic recession uh, since last spring in 2020. We've had in, in, in just a off a cliff uh, in terms of employment and and the and the economic output of our country, and it's taken out some businesses. It's been incredibly challenging. Um, you know, we were actually just looking back at, at at March and April of 2020 and how we activated the Economic Stabilization and Recovery Group, which was a mix of local uh, players inside government and outside government that really focused on how do we try to help make sure we do everything we can locally to let businesses get through this and nonprofits and others. I think the millions of dollars that we put out into the into the um, economy really helped. Uh, enormous help, too, from the federal government programs uh, starting last year and continuing this year with the American Rescue Plan Act and the and the CARES Act. Those have been incredibly important to try to get money both to businesses but also to customers and consumers so that they could keep, uh, keep food on their table and keep uh, employment when possible. But there's no way around the fact that this has been – we're still – you know, many, many jobs lower than we were in, in February of 2020. So there's a lot of people struggling. We're continuing to work, uh, find loans, find support, um, uh, help businesses uh, get through this. We're doing a lot of employment support programs. Um, but I, I know this is a big challenge and I want to, I do want to thank the the uh, the government, the federal government, the Biden administration, and the Congress for the American Rescue Plan Act money. That $22 million is very helpful to us for housing supports, affordable housing, for job supports, for infrastructure, and avoiding layoffs. But we're we're not out of the woods on that. Mm-hmm. And just, I think people might be curious, but you don't have to answer because this could be free PR for some business. You have a personal favorite restaurant here in Bloomington. <laughs> Well, I am careful answering that kind of question because I love uh, so many. I, I would say one of the things we tried to do to help restaurants was open up outdoor space. So we know eating outdoors is is safer. So anytime you see the chance, uh, patronize uh, your your local establishments. Uh, and I would say encourage, particularly those that are able to do outdoor space. Not all of them can, but when they do, uh, it's a way to help them get through, help support their employment and help them get through. You know, we've done a lot on Kirkwood. It's a great place to go down and see what you can do there around the square. Other places downtown are, are terrific places to experience. I think we're going to be headed into some nice fall weather, and I hope that may give people a chance to do some uh, outdoor dining that they might uh, have been looking forward to. Mm-hmm. So, moving to a slightly different topic, um, at a Bloomington City Council meeting, they approved a design for an apartment building on Cray Pike with solar panels and vegetation on the roof, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but then later on the Bloomington Reddit page, I read some residents expressing concern that traffic will be pretty hard on that bypass. Um, and some residents brought up the idea that maybe another kind of bridge there would be good, kind of like the B line. Um, and I was wondering if you know of any plans for this or 
ideas moving forward for how like uh, pedestrian traffic can be easier with that big bypass now that there's a lot more development going on on that road. Yeah, you know, there is a lot happening uh, on the east side of the bypass, uh, like you talked about there, of course, with the new hospital going to be opening up at the end of this year and that housing development on, on PDELS that you described, uh, that's a big investment in, in a lot of workforce housing that I think could be really helpful there. We are going to see more uh, traffic when you have that kind of thing happen. There's a lot of planning that's gone into it. Discovery Park uh, is a new um uh street with a light i think at the at the um, uh bypass but let me just say one thing that's that's part of our bicentennial plan that i'm excited about is the seven line and that's that is trying to create a much um better and more defined east west uh, route for pedestrians and bicyclists that will it's we're building it from the west to the east so the first phase of it goes from the b line uh, all the way to IU campus, uh, and that should be done uh, next month, actually. And then the plan is to keep that going through campus. Of course, there's a nice 7th Street kind of corridor, and then keep going east all the way to the bypass and past the bypass because you've got that great underpass there uh, to really create a wonderful bike and ped east-west connection that's very very dedicated and designed to be feel very comfortable. You know, anytime you have a development, there's going to be some changes in how people move around, and we'll keep staying uh, alert to that. But we're really focused on trying to expand the the ease and the and the comfort level of bike and pedestrian traffic. Uh, and that east-west corridor, particularly along Seventh Street, is going to be a really important one, I think, for the next several years. That's cool because I think yeah, that a lot of people don't know that that underground bypass is there. So I like having the trail there. I feel like that'll help un- people like use it more and have it be more routine. Yeah, that was a gift. Uh, part of our bicentennial gift in 2018 when we turned 200 was to do four new trails. And one of them mm-hmm. is that seven line, which eventually is supposed to go from the B line all the way out to 446 um, to reach all the way out mm-hmm. there to give people a very comfortable and and smooth and easy way to get east and west as a bicyclist or a pedestrian. And uh, we, the first phase of that, again, should be open next month. And then more phases in the in the months and years ahead, uh, and that underpass uh, is really a nice uh, feature there, uh, well, right on the at the bypass. I know at the I think maybe the budget meetings there was talk of how the one that goes past um, oh I'm blanking on the name right now it has the waterfall cascade yeah the cascades um, I personally I love that park and I think I. It's so it goes like a lot unknown by a lot of people. I agree. Yeah, and I was just thought that that road was closed off for maintenance for the longest time, and finally at that meeting I was like, oh, that's what's going on here, <laughs> and um, so yeah, I thought that was very interesting the discussion on whether it should continue to just be for bikes, um, or let cars go in there with speed I, bumps. I think that's going to be continue a continued question. Uh, it's a beautiful park. It's our oldest park. It's a it's a spectacular river valley, and I love being able to walk through it and bike through it uh, quietly. Uh, I think we'll continue to explore what that can be like in the in the months and years ahead. And as you heard, there was some discussion. There's some different views on that, but I'm a I'm a big proponent of trying to really uh, activate the um, access for bicycles and pedestrians there. And there's just a couple different options to think about how to do that. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. And so since I found the 
concern on about the traffic on Reddit. I'm uh, just curious, and I think some people would be curious to know, do you ever read r slash Bloomington? <laughs> I have to confess to you that I am so busy in my job that I tend to um, keep focused on connecting to people uh, in, in lots of ways, not so much through social media or the or the um, that side. I have been there, but I just I just don't find myself with a lot of time to to cruise that site. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. Well, then I think I'll call it that for today. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I guess I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you have questions for the mayor for next week, please email them to news at WFHB.org. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noelle Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noelle Herhusky Schneider. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB News, I'm Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Now stay tuned for Planetary Radio, an exploration into outer space, coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at wfhb.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at wfhb.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 